0: Please stand for today's reading. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter nine. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.
1: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning as we begin our time in God's Word together in prayer. God, as we bask in the radiant joy of Christmas Day this morning, we pray that you would do work in our hearts to give us hope in the midst of the darkness that we experience in this world and in our lifetimes. We pray, Lord, that in this word from Isaiah 9, you would remind us of the promise of salvation, your answer to our need by coming into the world that you made. We are grateful this morning for this word. We pray that you would do your work in us by the power of your Spirit, and we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Several years ago, you may remember... A news story gathered worldwide attention. A group of kids in Thailand who all played on a soccer team together had gone for a hike to visit a remote cave system in the jungle in the mountains nearby the village where they lived. It was a team tradition, and as they made their way into the cave with their coach, they had no clue that the whole world was about to hear their story. The cave system that they were visiting was immense, and before long, they had wiggled and squeezed their way through several narrow passages until they were over two miles into the depths of the mountain, to a spot that the team visited every year as a team tradition. They knew the cave well, so they weren't worried about becoming lost. They knew how to find their way, and they knew how to find their way out. What they didn't know was that while they were making their way further and further along, the rain had begun to fall outside. Thailand's monsoon season had arrived two weeks early. They didn't know that. And before long, the cave began to fill up with water around them. The kids and their coach, they were trapped. They remembered the winding and complicated path that they had taken into the depths of the mountain and they knew that their only way out had been cut off. Two miles of stone and water stood between them and the entrance of the cave. So they huddled together on a sandbar In a high spot in the cave, and they watched as the water rose around them. Within just a few hours, their flashlight batteries died, and they huddled together in the darkness. There was nothing they could do. In that situation, they had literally no options but to pray for a miracle. And they waited in silence and total darkness for eight days. But then, From the depths of the water around them, a flicker of light appeared. After eight days in the darkness, maybe they thought their eyes were playing tricks on them, but the light didn't go away. It wasn't a trick. Instead, it got steadily brighter and brighter until a rescue diver appeared from the water. He had come to find them, to search the network of caves and to bring them out to safety. It was an amazing story that gripped the world as people waited and wondered what would happen. At some point, after several days of searching, people began to think of it less as a rescue mission and more of a recovery mission. But then it was announced that the kids and their coach had been found alive, and people around the world cheered instantly. Hopelessness was replaced by relief before they were even out. Before they were even out of the cave, there was a promise of safety and deliverance. Something like that is happening right here in the passage that we're looking at this morning from the book of Isaiah. This book was written during a time in in Israel's history when it seemed like all hope was lost. Beginning in chapter 1, when we read a severe rebuke from God to his people, he says in verses 2 and 3, "'Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken.'" Children I have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Several things are important here. First is that God thinks of these people, the people of his nation, as his own children. They are not merely servants or lower forms of life as other gods of antiquity, considered humanity. His his love for them and affection for them is evident here in this passage. He loves them with fatherly love and affection, and he has raised them up under his own protection and provision. But, he says, they are rebels. He compares them to an ox and a donkey, which was just as much of a compliment back then as it would be today, except that he says the ox and the donkey are actually smarter than these people are. At least the donkey remembers who takes care of it, who feeds it, and who looks after it. Israel, on the other hand, does not. So God goes on to say, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, they are weighed down by their transgressions against God. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. The whole nation has turned from God. They have become idolaters. In fact, a good portion of this book is devoted to exposing the foolishness of their idolatry for the folly of hoping that God's card from stone and wood will actually be able to bless and protect them. They have exchanged the truth about God for a cheap imitation of God. They have scorned God's fatherly love for them, choosing in its place gods of their own design, which suit their preferences and are modeled after their own sinful character. They have adopted wicked religious practices rooted in the tradition of the pagan nations which surround them. For years, God has been calling them back to faithfulness, to a relationship with Him, to receive the blessing of his love and affection. He has sent prophet after prophet to warn them that should they persist in this sin, that he would one day send judgment against them. And now, in the book of Isaiah, that day has come. That judgment has arrived. God has raised up the Assyrians to answer the wickedness of his people, and the Israelites, as they look northeast, they see the instrument of God's justice drawing nearer. The Assyrians were an unstoppable force in Isaiah's day. Everywhere they went, destruction and death followed them. They had already decimated nations to the east, and their warpath now was aimed directly at Israel and Judah. God says in chapter 1 that his people will be struck down, that they will be bruised, and that the country will lie desolate and the cities burned with fire. And by chapter 9, that destruction has begun. Some of the territories in northern Israel have already fallen. So the people are anxious. They're afraid. And they begin scrambling to protect themselves. We read later on in the book of Isaiah how they form strategic alliances with neighboring nations. They begin paying tributes to nations like Egypt, sending piles of gold by the wagon load in order to to buy Egypt's protection. It's an ironic strategy that shows how much that they have forgotten about God's supremacy and his love for them, because now they're going back to a nation which once held them as slaves in order to protect their freedom. They were desperate to protect themselves, desperate to find some sense of safety and security from this threat that was looming. Secondly, they begin building up their defenses. They build massive city walls. They stockpile armories. They begin training armies for the battle that they know is coming, they will not be caught unprepared. But knowing what they do about the Assyrians, about their vast, numberless armies, about the swift victories that they've already won, and about the fearsome tactics that they employ in battle, they are not confident about their chances, even if they drafted every single man in the nation into the army and reinforced their defenses and built taller walls and built weapons of war, they would still be woefully outmatched, and they know it. So they turn to their final strategy, their idols. They make sacrifices and prayers, requests for deliverance. They have made gods for themselves, and now they are looking to those gods for help. They are doing everything that they can to keep themselves safe from an Assyrian invasion. But one thing that Isaiah has made clear so far in the opening chapters of this book is that the greatest threat to these people is not Assyria. It is God himself whom they have set themselves against. They have turned away from him. They have neglected and violated his law they have run headlong into wickedness and idolatry. They have chosen to forsake their calling, to be a beacon of light and life to the nations, leading them to the abundance and blessing of a relationship with God, choosing instead to show hatred and contempt for their neighbors by remaining silent about God's glory. So the greatest threat to their safety, and the one that they are ultimately attempting to protect themselves from, is God himself in whose hand Assyria is an instrument of judgment. So in chapter 8, God reminds them of what they should really fear, and it is not Assyria or any of the other bad guys who are out there, but that their dread should be for God himself. And the fact that he does not allow sin to go unanswered. The shadow that has descended on Israel and Judah is the darkness of God's wrath against evil. There's an important lesson here in these opening chapters of Isaiah about how God looks at sin. Though we might take it lightly, excuse it, justify it, or otherwise overlook it, God does not. He cannot. It is serious, and we should take it seriously, because God's wrath against sin is real, and it is dreadful. It is swift and relentless, and it is coming to Israel. That's the situation that people are living in as we open chapter 9, as this passage is being written. So, at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, Isaiah refers to darkness four times. These people are lost in the depths, they are trapped and utterly surrounded by darkness. Isaiah is attempting to convey something of the, the fear and terror and uncertainty of the situation for these people. And he does that. By choosing four different Hebrew words, which are all translated in the ESV that I'm reading from this morning as darkness. In Hebrew, actually, they are four different words. He's grasping at a way to capture the essence of the gloom and the despair that these people are feeling right now. And he does that by using four synonymous words to convey how lost and how helpless they are feeling right now. Because that's how we feel. When we suddenly find ourselves trapped in darkness, it is a fear of the unknown and uncertainty. One of the words that Isaiah uses here heightens the tension even more. When he writes about those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, the word for deep darkness is one that represents much more than simply the absence of light. It is a word that is used elsewhere in Scripture in one very familiar passage, Psalm 23, When the psalmist writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In Hebrew, the word shadow of death is one word, and it is the same word that Isaiah uses here in verse 2 of our passage when we read about the deep darkness. The people are not just experiencing a fear of the unknown. They know something about what is coming, and they dread it. They are watching God's judgment draw nearer to them, and it is the shadow of death. It is a feeling that we know when something that we dread is coming and there is nothing we can do to stop it, when we're caught, trapped, and know that there is no hope of escape. We feel it physically like a weight that drops into our stomach now there's several examples of this from my own life that I can think of to help illustrate this point, but as I thought about this this week, there was one that just kept coming to mind. When I was a high school student, one night a friend of mine was staying the night at my house, and we were hungry. It was late, late at night, and we were hungry. He lived in the next neighborhood over, and we hatched a plan to sneak out of my house in the middle of the night and to go to his house to eat a frozen pizza. His mom worked nights, so it was the perfect plan. We would sneak out, have the pizza, come back to my house without anybody, anyone being any the wiser to our sneaking. Of course, this was against all kinds of rules that my parents had for me in our house, but I figured they were sound asleep, so I was in the clear. The pizza was delicious, and everything worked perfectly. Until we got back to my house and went to crawl back into my bedroom window before we noticed that the window was latched from the inside. And instantly, a wave of dread washed over me like a physical weight. And I knew what was coming. There was nothing left to do. No escaping it. And because my parents are masters of psychological warfare, (laughs) they were just inside, in the living room, waiting for us to walk through the front door. The deed was done. I was guilty, and there was no escaping what awaited me inside. Here in Isaiah 9, these people are trapped, guilty of breaking God's law, abusing his patience and affection for them, and now they are surrounded by darkness that they have no power to cast away. But in the midst of that darkness, a flicker of light has appeared. It is not that the Assyrians have relented, canceled their plans, or that Israel's alliances have somehow come through for them. It's not as though the city walls have proven strong enough, or that their idols, the idols of these people, have suddenly come to life and given them some form of protection. It is that God himself will show them mercy, that he will make salvation for them, and that he will one day restore his people by redeeming them from their guilt. It's a flicker of light that we see here in chapter 9. The passage opens with the words, "...the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in deep darkness, on them light has shone. They have not caused it. None of their strategies or scrambling to protect themselves have worked. But God has caused this light to shine on them, and they have seen it. God is working." Though he is perfectly just and does not leave sin or evil unanswered, he is also gracious and he will make a way for his people to be redeemed. He is the light that is cutting through the darkness, the hope for helpless people and the redeemer of sinners who look to him for grace. And the rest of this passage explains what it means that this light has come and how it will make a difference. We see in these verses the whole arc of salvation history. It began with the problem, which we have seen. Then God reveals his promise, then his precedent, and then finally his plan. A word of comfort to a people who are facing their greatest fear. God's promise to his people here in this passage is astounding. You have multiplied the nation, we read in verse 3. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you. The people of your nation rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they defied the spoil. It is a promise that one day these people will come to rejoice before God. Isaiah illustrates this point with two illustrations that are here to, to give some context to these people. Their joy will be full like it is after a harvest, when the time of hard work, of sowing seeds and tending crops and prayerfully waiting for rain and sunshine to come at just the right time is finally completed. In the ancient world, waiting for the harvest was a fretful time. If a storm came at the wrong time or if no storm came at all, crops could easily be lost. For subsistence farmers, this would mean catastrophe. And for entire regions, the fear of famine was ever present. So the day of harvest was a day of jubilation, when fears of suffering could be set aside for a time. Isaiah's second illustration functions in a similar way. After a battle, when the winning side divide among themselves the spoils of victory, they could rest from their warfare for a moment, from the fear of defeat, at least for a time. Isaiah knows that the people will remember that kind of joy. They will remember days like that when they got to rest from fear for a moment. So he uses these illustrations to point forward to a day when they will rejoice free from fear. Though it is interesting that he chooses these two examples for a people whose land will soon be burned up and whose armies will soon be overrun because this is a promise that looks beyond the trials of the coming days to a future day when their joy will be filled up once more. Though Isaiah does something interesting here, grammatically speaking. The promise of God is described not as a future reality, but as something that is already done. It's described as something in the past tense, The promise of God is so sure that it is as good as true already for these people. God will surely bless this nation. He will surely multiply it and increase its joy, though right now, none of that is happening. Instead of joy, the people feel only fear. Instead of blessing, they are about to experience judgment. So this promise in Isaiah 9, about a day when they will rejoice as on the day of harvest, when there is no fear or uncertainty, was probably met with some doubt. At a moment when the Assyrians are causing these people to wonder whether they will soon be wiped off the face of the earth, God is promising that one day they will be an even greater nation, that they will have an even greater joy than they did before. And that would have probably been a difficult promise to believe. It's a doubt, I think, that we can relate to. When we face the loss of things that we treasure, people that we fought to protect, when we lose the things in life that give us joy, in the moment it's hard to hold, hold on to God's promises of love and protection and blessing. It's hard to hear and even harder to trust in God's assurances when the things that we hold most dearly in life are slipping from our fingers. But that is what Isaiah is pleading with these people to do. To cling to God's promises in faith. Relying on his faithfulness and his mercy rather than their resourcefulness and strength to deliver them from what they dread. Because he knows that for those who trust in God, who look to him with hope, a day will come when darkness is broken altogether when light and joy will stream into their lives. And even though it seems like an impossibility for the people of Israel in this moment, just like it seems impossible on some of the days of our own lives that we will ever feel joy again, there is evidence here that he is able to do what seems impossible to us on days like that. God has set a precedent of being able to defy our expectations. The promise of God is sure. And Isaiah wants people to know it. So he says in verse 5 the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. The oppression of these people will be overcome, and they can trust that promise because God has already proven his strength. The book of Judges tells the story of Gideon a warrior appointed by God to deliver his people. He was the captain of an army of 30,000 soldiers, but as they prepare for an important battle, God tells him to send all but 300 of them home. And then, despite overwhelming odds against them, they go into battle against the Midianites, whom Isaiah references in our passage in chapter 9, the Midianites who had come to wage war against them. And God gave his people a force of only 300, a miraculous victory, even though they were vastly outnumbered and outmatched. All they had to do was trust that he would come through and deliver them. It's a part of their history that God has designed as an enduring reminder that he is strong enough to save, even when it looks impossible for him to do so. All that they have to do is trust that he will. God will bring it about that every boot of the tramping warrior and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will come a day when their warfare is ended, when bloodshed and death are no more, and God will do this. He will bring about the day when they will not need city walls anymore because no one will be coming against them. When his people will live under his rule again, protected by his strength and blessed by his affection for them, his promise is the light shining from the deep darkness of the shadow of death that the people are living in right now, and their own history proves that he is able. And in the final verse of this passage in Isaiah 9, we read God's plan for how he will keep his promise, how he will deliver his people. Bring them salvation and show them mercy. A Savior is coming. The people will be delivered by a person, a rescuer, though he will not look like a rescuer. He will not appear as a great warrior. Instead, he will come as a child. Isaiah says in verse 6, "...for to us a child is born and a son is given." This is the plan of God, to give His people a deliverer who comes to them as a helpless child. It isn't the sort of thing that I think would have inspired much confidence. To people who are living every day under the threat of invasion from a bloodthirsty army of enemies, a comforting promise would have been for a numberless army of angelic warriors, or a show of God's power and supremacy like one of the plagues that afflicted Egypt during the Exodus the promise of a child doesn't seem to correspond to the threat that these people are facing. A year ago, when the COVID-19 pandemic was raging unchecked, what we were waiting for and praying for was the news of a vaccine. That was what we wanted. And it was a great relief when that announcement did eventually come. It would not have been much of a comfort to us at all, If instead of an announcement about a vaccine, someone from the National Institutes of Health or the CDC had said, Don't worry, everybody, we're going to send each of you a puppy. Like that would have been, I mean, puppies are great, but that doesn't correspond to the need that we were in, right? The need that we had for something that would help in the situation that we were in. For people living in a war torn nation, who faced destruction, the promise of God to send a child was probably a bit confusing to them. But God has proven again and again and again that he works in ways that people do not predict, that they could never predict, to bring about outcomes that people didn't see coming because they seemed impossible. God's promise continues, explaining that this child would defy all expectations. The government will be upon his shoulder, we read. He will be a ruler, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The one who will come to these people in their need will do what no one else could, because he will be from God, and he will be God himself. His wisdom will be the stuff of wonder. His might will be incomparable. His affection affection will be that of a father for his children, and he will bring about joy by his just rule and peace that these people so desperately need. In fact, his promise goes even further than that. He will not just bring restoration and peace after the Assyrians have come and waged their war. He will do something even greater. His dominion will extend beyond Israel His rule and his peace will increase and endure forever. We read that he will sit on the throne of Israel's former King David, but where David failed and was overcome by temptation, this divine king will not. He will establish and uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The promise of God is a person, a king who brings about and preserves peace. He will do what others have failed to do. He will protect his people. While others have built up walls, formed alliances, and equipped armies, their attempts to stem the tide of violence has utterly failed because they're fighting against the Assyrians and not against sin. But God's promised king will succeed where they failed." The child who will be born will be sent from God. He will be God himself, and he will bring peace not only among his people, but in his people, in the hearts of his people, and between God and his people, because he will rule with justice and righteousness. This is a promise that goes beyond the hopes of these people to escape the Assyrians. It goes far beyond what they were hoping for for this day for this moment in history. It speaks to their deepest need for someone to set them free from the just judgment of God and from captivity to sin itself. Isaiah 10 helps us to see this point more clearly. It reveals to us in verse 20 that God will, rev- will preserve for himself a remnant from among the people, survivors who will one day no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. God's plan of salvation is greater than the one that they hoped for. A day will come when he will not only put an end to Assyrian violence, but, but also the rebellious habits and the very hearts of his people. This is why the Apostle Paul would later write that the Savior has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between the people of God's kingdom, reconciling them to one another, and together reconciling them to God himself. He will draw them close where they will never again bring judgment upon themselves. In Isaiah 9, we see how he will do this work of salvation through a person. God made flesh and born among us. These are the promises of God to a beleaguered and fearful people 2,700 years ago and today. Though sin is great, His grace is greater. That though His people had earned His wrath, He will show them kindness. And though His people had turned away from them, from Him, He will draw near to them by being born as a helpless child among the people that He created. Just as he is just, it is his very heart to show this mercy. We read in verse 7 that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What he is passionate about, what he is zealous for, the thing that thrills him is to reveal his glory and his power by redeeming guilty people by his grace. Though humanity has been struggling against the corruption of the world since Genesis 3, we failed to deal with it. Our strategies, have failed. Our walls aren't high enough, our armies aren't big enough, we aren't strong enough. We have failed to solve the problem of our deepest need. At best, we can limit its interference in our lives. We do build walls to protect ourselves. We make alliances and form strategies and turn to the idols of our own day to answer our longing for safety and security. And it's true that we've come a long way from what the people in antiquity dealt with. We live longer and more comfortably, with less day-to-day uncertainty about whether or not our lives will be upended by conflict, but for all our effort and all our strength and all our cleverness and all our innovation, we can only hold back what we dread for a moment. The brokenness of this world remains, and the inward corruption of our desire for sin remains, no matter what we do to deal with it. And the judgment of God against all sin, the rebellion and wickedness that we have participated in, remains because God leaves no evil unanswered. The deep darkness remains. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts brings light where there was only darkness before. This is the hope of Isaiah 9 and the book of Isaiah as a whole, that God will make a way for his people to receive grace and to flourish and that he would do it through a person, a great Savior who is their true king. And at Christmas, we rejoice that that king has come. The child born in Bethlehem was born according to the promise of God, some of which we we read about here in the book of Isaiah. God's son took on flesh. He was born and he lived here among the people that he came to save. It was the moment when the first ray of light cut through the darkness, when the plan of salvation was set in motion. It was like the moment that those kids in that cave first saw the flicker of light from the depths of the water around them. At first, it was faint and distant, but it steadily grew brighter and brighter. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't an illusion. It was hope becoming reality. But what gets me about that part of the story is that after the rescue diver surfaced and he counted all the kids, made sure that none of them were seriously injured, he gave them some granola bars and a new flashlight, and then he left. They were alone again. In fact, because of the complexities of the situation, it would be almost another week before a rescue operation was underway to get the kids out. They were in the cave for another week. But that second week wasn't like the first one. Now, the kids knew that a rescuer was coming back for them. For the readers of this book, the book of Isaiah, God's promise of salvation is a flicker of light, a sign that hope is not lost. And that same sign has come to us. Because this word was fulfilled, this promise has been kept. Jesus Christ has come. Truly God and truly man, born that he might bring salvation to his people by atoning for their sin with his own blood, as the book of Isaiah has anticipated. So Christmas is a celebration of promises kept, and it is also the assurance of hopes for things yet to come. Because even though Christ has come, he lived a perfect life in order for it to be counted ours by faith, he died an atoning death. For the payment of our sin and conquered the death that was the consequence of our sin, the world is still broken. Though we are saved, set right with God and forgiven, we still live in this place. We live in the already true good news of the gospel and the not yet finished work of redemption. Where suffering and death are things that we still face at every turn. We still live with uncertainty that things, will, the things that we love will be lost and that tomorrow may be the day that our worst fears come to our door. We still endure the darkness, the deep darkness and the shadow of death, but it isn't like it was before. Now we know that our God is a promise keeper and that we are not forgotten or cast away, that we are dearly loved, atoned for, and sought after. That we will be brought from this world of darkness, from the valley of the shadow of death, into the very presence of God, where the sun will no more be our light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give us light by night, but the Lord God Himself will be our everlasting light, and God Himself will be our glory, as we read in chapter 60. Where the people of ancient Israel heard the word of promise and trusted God to keep it, we have seen the word made flesh, God's promise kept, and wait with patience and assurance that he will finish the work that he has begun to make all things new and set all things right. For the ancient Israelites, it was a word of anticipation and longing for the Savior to arrive. For us, it is the same. But the light has already begun to break through. God's Spirit dwells in us, reminding us of the truth, and so we wait with confidence. So Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that though this life is full of suffering, it does not compare to the glory to be revealed. Endurance and perseverance are rooted in the hope of better things to come. And so, he writes, all of creation is groaning with anticipation of God's finished work. And then he writes in chapter 8, that not only creation is groaning, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters of God, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. The Sunday after Christmas is a good time to reflect on the way that Christ's first coming into the world is the assurance of his second and the hope that that represents. That in this present darkness that we live in now, we can be confident that this is not how the story will end. That light has shined up from the depths, it has come to us, and it is coming again to cast out all darkness and all fear and despair and suffering. So we rejoice with Christmas joy, marveling at God's love for us, and we praise him together today. We praise this one whose love for us drove him to make a way for our salvation by sending a child, his child, for our freedom from sin, for mercy, and for hope amidst darkness. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice together today, thankful for your merciful love which shines into the darkness of our world. We pray that you would strengthen our hope for days when the darkness feels overwhelming and deepen our joy as we remember the arrival of your Son, who's coming here to live among us and die as one of us, is our confidence that he will return and bring us into the light of glory. We pray and we praise you today in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.